Forget about the way that Tony Soprano makes his way in the world. That's just to feed his children. There's two Tony Sopranos. You've never seen the other one. That's the one I want to show to you. Welcome to our four-part series on The Sopranos, in which we are discussing themes of fathers and masculinity and femininity and families on The Sopranos. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. We just heard Tony Soprano telling his psychiatrist about the fact that there are two Tonys in the season five opener of the same title. In the first two episodes of our four-part look at the daddy issues inherent to the Sopranos, we've looked at Tony now as the son of his absent father, Johnny, and cold, manipulative mother, Livia. We've seen him as a father to his little F family, Meadow and AJ. And then in our last ep, we looked at him as the father to his mob family, and how those roles naturally conflict with each other. But in this episode, we are going to keep a tight focus on the acclaimed season five, which further examines who Tony is when both those identities begin to fracture within himself. We also look at how Tony's issues with self-definition reflect our own issues as a society as two decades worth of new viewers use the benefit of hindsight to unpack what these character studies and the authorial choices of David Chase have ultimately said about gender roles, identity politics, politics politics, race relations, and the downfall of Earth itself. Busy, there was no Twitterverse when these shows ended. In 2007, I believe Twitter existed, but there certainly wasn't this kind of attention that just has occurred in the last year from Twitter about The Sopranos. That's right. There's a whole new audience out there for it, and we're going to talk about that more on this episode. Once again, we'll hear from RogerEbert.com and New York Magazine critic Matt Zoller-Seitz and Rolling Stone critic Alan Sepinwall. And we're also going to hear from a new voice, the voice of Chingy Nay, who's a online contributor at Mel Magazine and who wrote a wonderful essay in August called The Sopranos Belongs to the Gays Now about queer themes and The Sopranos that you and I hadn't considered going into this. Indeed. So season five opens with an episode called Two Tonys. Carmela and Tony at this point are separated. He's back living in his childhood home in Livia's house. Mm -hmm. The opening starts on the Sopranos' home and you see how the lawn is overgrown. It's covered in mm -hmm. leaves. The swimming pool hasn't been taken care of. It's, I think, a very visual representation of things have changed with the capital C. Yeah, there's no man in the house to take care of the gutters. This title of this episode is in reference to two Tonys. Tony, after taking a break from therapy, he's watching television post-coitally with a girlfriend and the Prince of Tides is on television. Right. Which is a movie with uh, Barbara Streisand and Nick Nolte that she famously wrote and directed about a man who sees 
a therapist for the first time to deal with childhood trauma, just for the folks at home who aren't as up on that shit as we are. So Tony is totally riveted by the Prince of Tides and watching the Prince of Tides realizes, even though he's always flirted with Melfi, that, you know, now that he's single, he might want to shoot his shot again. So he sends Melfi a gift basket with flowers and also a thing of Tide detergent with a note signed from your Prince of Tide. <laughs> and you can just feel that he thought that was the cleverest thing of all time. It's the perfect example of the humor on the show. <laughs> it's, it's so good. I mean, obviously it was Tony's attempt at a play on words, but there's so many hilarious misuses of words and phrases throughout this entire series played for comedic effect. After he sends her the gift basket, mm -hmm. he calls her on the phone to make sure that she got it. And he's basically like asking her out at that point. And she tries to say, I can't do that. I'm a therapist. You're my patient. Thank you for the tide. <laughs> but um, no. And then he shows up unannounced at her office, like very soon after that. And there's this very uncomfortable scene because we remember from season three that she's raped and he doesn't know about that, but he is like pressuring her this whole time and actually kisses her. And she just says, don't do that. You know, trying to get him to respect her boundaries. It's very intense to watch. So the other thing in this scene Aaron, where he kisses her, the audio that we opened this episode where he tells Malfi there's two sides. There's the guy who has to do bad things to feed his children. And then there's like another side that she just simply hasn't seen yet. Sure, sure. And it's funny to me. He's been in therapy for how long at this point? Like six years. He thinks that there are two versions of him. One that's great that she just hasn't seen yet. It's a delusional side of Tony that I think you haven't seen. You've seen it, but for him to say so plainly as he does, he responds by getting really defensive and saying, why can't I just have something for myself? Mm -hmm. And it's like, exactly, dude. A relationship is a two-way street. Well, yeah, he's never experienced that. I'm going to play us as like, he's not taking no for an answer. And he shows up at her office unannounced at nighttime and forces her to say, okay, I'm going to really tell you what I think about you as a potential romantic partner. As a man, yeah. You're not a truthful person. You're not respectful of women. You're not really respectful of people. I don't love people. Maybe you love them, I don't know. You take what you want from them by force or the threat of force. I couldn't live like that. I couldn't bear witness to violence or... Fuck you! You fucking cunt! So this isn't the first time Tony has stormed out of therapy. I feel like it happens like every season. Oh, yeah. I think one of his first sessions he walks out of. Yeah. He just cannot confront the truth of himself or just being rejected in any way. 
that insecurity. Yeah. And she's never expressed that from a therapeutic standpoint. She's never been that direct with him. As we'll go on to see in this episode, Tony is incredibly sensitive and he cannot handle being seen or having any of his vulnerabilities known by other people. Yep. So Aaron, in this same episode, a bear shows up at the Sopranos house. Carmela and AJ are alone in the house. Tony is not living with them. Meadow is off at school. And AJ is terrified. He's outside and this bear rambles onto their property and he completely freezes and, and then screams for Carmela. Yeah, Carmela right. comes out with pots and pans and bangs them and scares this bear that's just there looking for some bird seed to eat off of their property. There's all this animal imagery throughout where animals are symbolic. And of course, what's a bear? It's a big, scary animal that will literally bite your head and scallop you if you get in their way or anger them. But we also call them cuddly. We project all of these softer qualities onto bears. And so you'll see that the bear makes another appearance later at the end of the season. But it's just another scene where you realize how vulnerable Carmela is. And I remember when my parents got divorced and or were separated and there was that feeling of everything changing in the house for my mom, who was often alone for the first time, having to handle everything in the household. And she basically learned to fix a house and build a house, which is something my dad was never good at to begin with. So I really related to this whole season where they're showing that Tony is out of the house. Yeah, same. My parents got separated when I was a freshman in high school. I think my mom did her best to shield me from her personal, you know, difficulties being a single mother suddenly but she took night classes to learn money management at a community college yeah because she now had to figure out how to make ends meet I mean my father was paying child support for me obviously but it was difficult and I'm sure that there were moments with her where she felt afraid I know I did so the two Tonys got me thinking about all of the think pieces we've seen lately, because a lot of people during quarantine apparently watched The Sopranos for the first time because binge watching is a thing. We had all this time on our hands. And so two new generations really have come to the show. And also the hindsight of 20 years, 25 years later, what has happened to society and how the show is still so relevant. So we just wanted to make mention of some of these pieces that kind of surprised us in the last year. Yes, there's been a ton of attention, especially around the Mini Saints of Newark. That's why we decided to do this big look at The Sopranos. Recently, Willie Staley in the New York Times Magazine wrote an article, Why is every young person in America watching The Sopranos? He gives mm -hmm. a lot of examples of leftist podcasts and socialists, Facebook accounts, a Twitter account called Gabagool Marks that <laughs> shares socialist Sopranos memes. But Willie Staley offers this as far as talking about the environment goes and the show's depiction of contemporary America 
as relentlessly banal and hollow is plainly at the core of the current interest in the show, which coincides with an era of crisis across just about every major institution in American life. The Sopranos has a persistent focus on the spiritual and moral vacuum at the center of this country and is oddly prescient about its coming troubles, which is the opioid epidemic, the crisis of meritocracy, teenage depression and suicide, fights over the meaning of American history, even the flight of the ducks who had taken up residence in Tony's swimming pool, not to mention all the lingering shots of the swaying flora of North Jersey, reads differently now in an era of unprecedented environmental degradation and ruin. And we talked about that with Matt and Alan. What do you guys think about why 20 years later are we still fascinated by this show? Well, I think part of it is, unfortunately, David Chase was right about a lot of things. You know, Tony Mm -hmm. says in the first episode, I feel like I came in at the end of something. And it's it's a show about like a crumbling empire And initially it's supposed to be the mob, but it really sort of spreads out until the viewpoint of the whole show is America and society in general are kind of falling apart. We're just letting it happen due to our own selfishness. And that has certainly played out a lot in the 14 years since, you know, the the last scene with, with the journey song. And I think like that's very palpable as you go back and you watch the show and you see like, this was really prophetic. And these things that they're talking about here, this is still happening now and it's even worse. And why didn't anybody listen? And so it's sort of, it becomes this cathartic thing of even if you weren't old enough to see the show when it was on, it still feels very relevant to your life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what he said. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That's, and you know, I was particularly struck upon the rewatch that we did for the book on all of the talk of the environment. Yeah. Something that comes up pretty regularly, like all the way through the show is like little references. And sometimes it's more than that, where it's like, uh, meanwhile, uh, nature is uh, being uh, slowly uh, strangled to death, like Tony wanted to do with uh, his mom in the hospital. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's that's sort of the, what's going on underneath all of the mob stuff and uh, all of the satire and all of the stuff about pop culture and, and materialism. And, and you know, it, I think the masterstroke for me watching the show is the fact that Tony is in waste management. Right. That's kind of what the United States has become. We're about waste management. We're not about cleaning anything up. We're about managing the waste. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You yeah. Know? That New York Times piece I thought was really ding, ding, ding moment. David Chase being enamored by something he saw in a textbook as a little boy about how America purifies its water um, <laughs> and how... Yeah. He loved that and it made him so proud of America. And I thought it was like a very telling anecdote considering what Tony pretends to do for a living. And yeah, yeah, also thinking about listening to you talk, Matt, like the bear that wanders into their property has been pushed out of some forest by McMansion developments and the cornfields used to be there when Johnny Sack moved into his house just a few years prior. And yeah. The juxtaposition of the woods and the wilds being pushed out in the garden state by all this garbage. You were originally, uh, Alan and I, when we were planning the book, one of the sort of design elements that we talked about was building each of the seasons around an animal. Because there are, I believe in each of the seasons, there's an animal that comes to be central in some way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether it's, you know, the bear in season five or the ducks in season one or little Cosette in, uh, what is that, season uh, four? 
Yes, thank you. Cassette. Well, and Pio Mai yeah. also in season four. So, I mean, Pio Mai, right? And the imagery of the goat in the same episodes are seasoned. You know, when Pio Mai dies, there's this goat. And then it wasn't until your interview with Chase that I even knew that that was an image for hell or the devil. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and also just this idea of, the Sopranos, and and this is an area where I think that for the most part, television took so much from The Sopranos moving forward. But one thing they didn't take was that the show's absolute conviction that there are certain things that we cannot know mm -hmm. and that it makes the art more interesting if we don't know them. And it's not just the ending of the show. It's also like, you know, what happened to the Russian at Pine Barrens? Right. Who started the fire in the stable to kill Pio Mai? Is there an afterlife? You know, that there's that wonderful scene in the episode uh, with Olivia's funeral where AJ is doing homework and he asks for Meadows' help in interpreting uh, the Robert Frost poem, stopping by the woods on a snowy evening. And uh, she says, well, you know, what does white, uh, what does a black represent? And he's like, uh, I can't remember exactly how he says it, but like he gets hung up on the fact that both white and black could conceivably represent death. He wants it to be one way or the other. And then what happens right after that is he hears a creak in the house and he says, grandma. Right. Right. And and the show never tells us that that was his grandma. It might've just been some creak in the house and we have to live in the ambiguity and the uncertain. And yet in the same episode, when they're at like the wake at the house and you see like someone open a mirrored closet door for a half second, who is there? Big pussy. Right. And it's angled in such a way that no one in the scene saw it. That's for us. You know, and I think it's pretty clear that there is something beyond, like, that's something that David Chase has always been extremely coy about is the question of, you know, is there a world beyond the one that we can detect with our senses? Mm -hmm. And it's pretty clear to me that he thinks there is, but we don't know. So that was Matt talking about the afterlife and death and something you see in season five early on is another form of death, which is dementia which shows up in the character of Uncle June. He slowly starts to fade away into Alzheimer's. And this episode in particular is so heartbreaking. The episode is called, Where's Johnny? And you see Junior's dementia is becoming more and more prominent. He wanders away from home. They can't find him for hours. He thinks that he's going to find Tony's long-deceased father, Johnny Boy, who was his brother. Later, Junior makes a comment about how Tony will never make varsity football. Again. Tony is slingshotted back to this core wound from high school. And Tony really shows his narcissism and immaturity here that he can't put that aside and say... This person is unwell. He doesn't know what he's saying to me. Tony does not get that. It actually takes June's neurologist telling Tony he doesn't know what he's saying for him to understand that June's not just intentionally fucking with him by bringing up the varsity football thing. Right. Also, simultaneously, I don't think we talked about this in the last episode. Janice has now married Bobby. Janice, being the shapeshifter that she is, has gone from sort of Buddhist, enlightened woman to girlfriend of Richie Aprile, girlfriend of Ralphie, to now wife, we see, of Bobby Baccalari, whose wife tragically dies. And he has two small children. And Janice kind of hitched her wagon to Bobby. 
And Janice and Bobby basically tell Tony, we need your help taking care of June. We can't do it alone. Mm. He's wandering away from home. That, of course, turns into a screaming match with Janice in which Tony tells Bobby, who's watching on the sidelines with his jaw hanging open, you better watch out, Bobby, because she's going to do the same thing that Livia did to, quote, daddy. Tony refers to Johnny Boy as daddy. She'll do the same thing to you she did to daddy. Meaning mm-hmm. Janice is going to wear you down, honey. Tony realizing that he needs to suck it up about the varsity football comment and maybe give June another chance after talking to his doctor goes and talks to him. Yeah, this scene really gets me every time because we see Tony just asking the most vulnerable question that a, a person could ask another person. Yeah, a father figure, which June is. Well, let's assume that you didn't know what you were saying, that, that you forget when you say shit over and over. Yeah. Why's it got to be something mean? Why can't you repeat something good? I mean, don't you love me? Don't you love me? Ugh, James Gandolfini. I don't think anyone could do it better. You hear the little boy in there. They're watching a show about prairie dogs on <laughs> television and nature special. And yeah, it's actually an enormously sad scene down to don't you love me? But also the fact that Junior does not respond to him when he's dead. So All Happy Families is the fourth episode. And this is another iconic what divorce does to, to families from every perspective. This episode was written by a woman named Toni Kalem who actually plays Angie Bompensero, who was Big Pussy, the late, great Big Pussy's wife on the show. A minor character, but one you will see come up as a reminder that Tony is responsible for taking care of the mob wives and family members left behind, the collateral damage, if you will. Yeah. And also she's a reminder to Carmela of what could happen. Carm sees her handing out grocery store samples and it shocks her because, you know, she sees her doing this sort of like crummy job. And what you actually start seeing in this season and the next season is that Angie opens her own mechanic auto body shop and is quite successful and happy and like driving a cool sports car. And she kind of serves as like a version of freedom that maybe Carmela aspires to yes and you can really tell that in this episode which is really about divorce largely from the point of view of Carmela that a woman writer had a hand in this dialogue yeah you see AJ really misses his dad you know when my parents got divorced my dad up until he died really so this went on for another 20 years I was with him anywhere. I mean, we were parting ways. He would shake my hand, you know, and there would be mm-hmm. like a hundred bucks in it or like, you know, anywhere from like $20 to $200 and 20s. Yeah. Tony does a similar version of here's some walking around money for you with AJ, which is getting him a drum set and a SUV. So, you know, Tony is feeling guilty. His actions have broken up the family. And also in AJ's child brain, he resents the fuck out of his mother and is angry with Carmela for, quote, you know, kicking dad out of the house. 
And so you see that really played out in this episode, that dynamic. Oh, man, AJ is such a dick to his mom. He's really acting out in anger against her. It's one of my favorite scenes. Like he goes to the city to visit Meadow and he's like 16 or something and he parties all night. And poor Carmela is just like convinced he's dead in a ditch like any, you know, mom would be. And AJ comes home and he has no eyebrows. (laughs) Like his friends have hazed him overnight and like waxed off his eyebrows or something or shaved them off. It's hilarious. And when Tony comes over, Carmela is nursing um, her knee with ice because she has just fallen down the stairs during her confrontation with AJ, where she just wanted to make sure that he was okay. She falls down the stairs and he just looks at her from the top of the stairs and just walks off. And I do remember just like my poor mother during this time in our lives where my two brothers were AJ's age and just giving her hell. And we see that Tony, like so many fathers, really believes that this is Carmela's issue, that this kind of emotional maintenance and dealing with the actual hard parts of parenting are a mother's responsibility. Look at your face. If you've got some kind of sexual proclivity with that teacher or whatever, now's the time to tell us. I mean, what went on up there? Poppers and weird sex. What? No. Look, uh, we don't do drugs without some stupid dopers. I had a few beers, but it just made me sick. How can anybody believe what you say? Because I told you. You never believed me. You had a couple beers. Yeah. You didn't do any drugs. No. Come on, look. A couple of beers. Should be grounded, yeah, but it's not the end of the world. What? Oh, you know what? I am sick of your bullshit, both of you. He can go live with you. Don't get dramatic now, all right? Well, great, good. Shut up. I have never been more serious in my life. You know, Carmela, what's the big deal? Just a couple of beers right in front of them, which is Parenting 101. Like, you don't argue about how to punish in front of the kid, particularly when you're out of the house. Yeah, this sort of new side of Carmela that's like, no, I'm done and I need a break. And... We talked about it on the first episode of this series about the Sopranos, but mothers are often blamed for everything because they're traditionally and not always, of course, but traditionally and also stereotypically the most present parent. And so they're the easiest to blame and resent for everything because they were doing everything. Yep. And mothers of the world, we see you. The other thing I'll say about this episode is, you know, Carmela's had it with AJ, who really is a fucker in this era of the show. But she also really misses him. And there's a bittersweet flashback to her watching him as a little boy playing on his big wheel in the driveway. Yeah, it's got to be the worst. You know, I don't have kids, but my sister, my nephew is four and she talks about like, I can't even think about the day that he doesn't want me to read to him at night and pushes me away Uh, the other thing it should be said you know aj goes to live with tony and that lasts for one episode aj and tony do not get along aj is in his peak teenage broadiness mode and 
Tony cannot handle AJ at all. And he's back with Carm by the end of the next episode. Yep. Yep. So the next episode, Irregular Around the Margins, really focuses on Adriana as a character in relation to Tony. Right. So we should say that Adriana, who again is Christopher's long-suffering girlfriend, has been pinned by the FBI. They're watching her. They're threatening her. They're like, if you don't help us, you're going to go to prison and you won't be able to be with Christopher. They're using her. She has been suffering in silence for months or over a year, and it's caused all kinds of health problems for her. She has like IBS that is debilitating, and Christopher just has no time for her pain in general. But she's been keeping these secrets. And in this season, you see that Tony emerges as a father figure for her, I think. But in this episode, in episode five, Christopher is out of town dealing with business and Tony and Adriana have the opportunity to be alone together at her club in her office and they get to talking and he notices that she is not feeling well and she shares that she's had some health problems and he's always calling her like a good kid and we've seen Tony stick up for her you know, with Christopher and say, like, you should marry this girl and don't hit her and things like that. So I got this feeling like he was going to be this positive force for a while. And then he kind of sexualizes it in this episode, even though it seems like they're going to, they end up, they're going to go buy some Coke and it's like, oh my God, they're going to do Coke and have sex. And they get into a car accident. Which launches into a whole thing of, of rumors about what happened between Tony and Adriana. Yeah. Why were they alone in a car together at like two o'clock in the morning and they actually got in a car accident that way? So, you know, Christopher's imagination is running wild anyway. Like she is badly injured. She's in a neck brace. She's bruised and battered. And when he finds out that she was in the car with Tony. He beats her. Christopher beats her after she's already been in an accident. And we see this scene, which we'll play a little clip of, where all the mobsters in town, everybody is talking about it. And so here that is. Tony walked away without a scratch. But Adriana suffered a severe blow to the head. Adriana got caught giving a big guy a blowjob. And when the paramedics found him, she had his cock still in her mouth. The statistics shows that most single car fatalities are the result of guys popping their load behind the wheel. Apparently, he came all over the sun visor. You see this echoed throughout the whole series. And we'll talk about this in a little bit in this episode, how sort of stereotypically feminine these big mob guys really are. They're a bunch of gossiping dudes that are sitting around calling each other on the phone being like did you hear what happened and it's literally a game of telephone well, what I like about that scene is that it shows how gossipy they really are and how heady they are Tony Adriana seeming love connection in the back of the soprano sessions they ask David Chase if in an alternate reality of the sopranos if they hadn't got into the car accident did Chase think that Adriana and Tony would have slept together? 
And Chase says Adriana could have never betrayed Carmilla like that. She would have been totally consumed by the guilt. Interesting, because I always read it as she would just never betray Christopher because she loves him so much. Whereas another female character on the show would because being with Tony, being his Gumar would mean power for that person. But Adriana truly is always just so earnest about her undying love for the abusive Christopher. For the abusive Christopher and for his family. You hear references to Adriana's mother and she makes appearances in the next season, her mother, like one line, but you get the sense that Adriana really loves the family that comes with Christopher. I could see Adriana that she would think, I don't want to lose that family. Right. You know, as dark as this show is, there is a really um, funny scene where Vito, who we'll hear about later on, one of Tony's captains, is bragging and lying that Adriana was all over him while Christopher was in rehab for heroin. And Christopher walks into this moment of him bragging and he shuts up immediately. And Christopher's like, what? What do you have to say to me? Say it to my face. And then he throws a full submarine sandwich at Vito and calls him a parade float, which is a comment on Vito's weight. But it's funny because throughout this whole show, like all of this stuff happens with Adriana, with the fallout of it. You know, Carmela also believes this rumor and is like, what the fuck to Tony? And the, really the only thing that you hear out of Tony this whole episode from like a moral, like that, that was wrong, that was bad standpoint, is when he hears that Chrissy threw a sandwich at Vito. Like, right. we're going to have to address the, the food throw-in. It's <laughs> a mortal sin in Tony's world. Sentimental education is when Swarm sleeps with Adrian's guidance counselor. Oh, my God. There's, like, a few stretches of episodes where you really start to see these different sides of Carmela. Finally, after having feelings for Furio, having feelings for the contractor that came and worked on their house that kind of found out that Tony was her husband and then ghosted her. The priest. The priest. Like, there's <laughs> been these men dancing around Carmela the whole series that she can never sleep with. Mm -hmm. Now that Tony and her have separated, she finally gets to sleep with AJ's guidance counselor, Mr. Wegler. Who is like yep. Mr. You know, intellectual, sensitive, well-read. And Carmela is introduced to the concept that I think a lot of women in their 20s and 30s experience, especially living in New York City, right, Erin? Mm -hmm. This person who is seemingly like Mr. Sensitive and Smart turns out to be an enormous asshole. Yes. I also love how Carmela is not in her 20s and 30s. She's in her 40s. And I remember when my mom was dating for the first time after her separation. And she was also like, holy shit, men are terrible. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, my God. You think that you're falling in love and it's really just they want to sleep with you and then it's over. You know, it's just like that thing. Yeah. And Mr. Regler is played by David Strathairn, who is so, so good at inhabiting like these sensitive men and then digging in with the shitty neutered, but like angry digs. 
he basically breaks up with her because he's afraid of, you know, being involved with a mobster's ex-wife. And he accuses her of using her pussy to get AJ into a good school. And it's just gross. It is gross. It's funny because in the last episode we talked about in the university episode with the tragic killing of Tracy, the stripper, the juxtaposition between Tracy and Meadow and the Soprano sessions, which is chock full of enormous footnotes. Matt and Alan compare Tony and Mr. Wegler. Like they say that it's like a similar sort of mirroring. But yeah, Carmela, it's what you said about your mom dating again after the divorce. Like, wow, it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> I was in college at the time. And I remember like my mom coming over like, girls night spending the night and literally crying over like a full-grown man she had a, a crush on and who had pulled one of these things with her and it was so relatable to me in college at the time I remember sort of chastising her like like what did you think it was going to be like <laughs> you know? yeah, that, I was a teenager it's terrible my mother I really am her daughter because when my stepfather <laughs> asked her out she like didn't really get that he was asking her out and then told him she couldn't go out with him for like two months that she was really <laughs> busy and that maybe like in six weeks they, she gave him a date like six weeks in the future that they could hang out yeah you know we talk about patterns and we've talked about it a lot on tell me about your father in general the Freudian classic concept of like we're attracted to people who remind us of the parents we have the most issues with Carmela's issues could be mostly with her mother. We don't know. But we don't know a lot about her father, who's sort of a quiet guy, right? Who's a contractor. And he comes over to the house to fix something. And Carmela is heartbroken after her experience with Mr. Wegler. She's sobbing on the bed. And her dad comes in and they have this conversation. Somebody been punching this door? Yeah, the man around, you wouldn't need to call me. Yeah, right. You're still young, Mel. Good-looking woman. There's no reason you shouldn't move on with your life, if that's what you want. Well, there actually was somebody. They seemed very nice. Oh, that's good. Well, he was a wolf in sheep's clothing. He made all these accusations about my character. Whatever I say, whatever I do, because I was married to a man like Tony, my motives will always be called into question. Well. So one thing I want to say about the casting of Carmela's dad, and I think Tony even comments on it at one point, he's Reed Finn. Like he's a tiny little man, the polar opposite of Tony physically. He's not a bear. And you can see like after Carmela pours her heart out, like his response here is just silence. <laughs> and he kind of like leaves the room. Yeah, he says, well, and he walks out. Well, yeah. And it, it just shows how lonely it is, you know, to be an adult child and not be able to talk to your even older parents. I think we all think 
if we're given the opportunity to know our parents while we're adults ourselves, that we're going to be able to connect with them in a way that will explain things like when we're growing up and they always say, someday you'll understand when you have children of your own. But it's not necessarily ever like that. Most people, I think, are, do not have like close friendship type vulnerable conversations with their parents. That is such, such, such a good observation. And I think it's one of the reasons why now you hear more and more people use the phrase like family of origin and family of choice. Because mm -hmm. as adults, it's, it's so true. You see your parents for who they are and you see them as a fellow adult and there's not always a connection there. But I thought the fact that, that Carmela really needed someone to talk to in that moment, her dad to come sit on the side of the bed and pet her head or tell her that it was going to be okay or that he loved her and he can't do that. And it suddenly made a lot of sense to me that she would be in a, in a relationship and 20-year-plus marriage with Tony Soprano. Hell yes, who also cannot do it. And it, it's a clear choice by David Chase to have the father in that scene instead of like her mother, which would be the cliche who you would talk to about men. Yeah. Um, so this next episode, one thing I'll say about it is that the one reason why I put it in here is because so you do have a moment of sympathy for Livia. Tony meets his late father's girlfriend, this foxy redhead, even in her 70s or however old she is, and once like had sex with JFK. That's her claim to fame. And Tony even brags to his friends that his dad's Kumar had sex with the president. We should say also that Tony is back in therapy. Well, <laughs> Melfi agrees to treat him. He's back telling the story of being triggered by a story that his dad's former girlfriend relays. She's talking about all of the things that Johnny Boy gave her and how close they were. He had like an extra set of slippers at her house. And, and then she says something about it, even giving me a dog. And Tony pieces together as an adult that the dog she's talking about was a dog that he had had Tippy as a little boy that he loved, that Livia hated and made them give away and told Tony that went to live in a farm. But Tippy actually went to live with Fran. And that triggers the memory of his mother had a late in the pregnancy miscarriage where she was hemorrhaging and had to go to the hospital. And Johnny Boy was with Fran, the mistress. Little Tony couldn't find Johnny boy who was with Fran. And then he finally gets his dad on the phone and is like, you know, mom's had a, a miscarriage. We need to go to the hospital. And Livia's in bed in the hospital and is like, where were you? And Johnny boy, he's like, we were at a Yankees game. And she's like, bullshit, you were at a Yankees game. And, and he basically forces Tony to lie and agree that they were at a Yankees game, even though Libya knows it's a lie. Livia feels like they're in cahoots with each other and basically is just like, fuck both of you. And Tony, this reaction where he can almost feel for his mom and then is just like, oh, fuck her. He ends this memory with Melfi and you think he's going to be like, yeah, my mom had to put up with a lot of bullshit. And I think Melfi kind of says that in his response is, fuck her. I was reminded that 
you know, when Tony is confronting Christopher, when we learn at the intervention in seasons past that Christopher rolled over and smothered Cosette, Adriana's dog, he's like, I know what it's like to lose a pet. And I didn't even know what he was talking about then. I don't think the viewer necessarily did, but it was baked in. It's like one of his memories, like varsity football not making the team that like haunts him. I think Chayo Mai had died at that point. So I think that's mm. what he was referring to with Cassette. But you're right. I think that he's also talking about Tippy, And he's also talking about Tracy the Stripper. Um, it's all in there. The other thing that's interesting about the character of Fran is that she puts on JFK's sailor hat for Tony. And then she does an impression of Marilyn Monroe singing Happy Birthday, yeah. Mr. President. And Tony is watching her. And he starts disassociating while she's doing it because I think he's realizing that he's both turned on and also seeing her as a sexual being in the way that maybe his father had. No. Also, like how pathetic she is, kind of trying to hit on him. Yeah. And he feels, I think, used like she's trying to manipulate him to get money because she is. He does have her money. Right. And so we see this a lot through the series, like a lot of the roots of his resentment toward women, whether it's justified or not, is because he feels like, well, they just see me as a, a bank card. Yeah. And it goes back to what Melfi told him when she connects the Gabagool to his panic attacks. And we talked about it in the last episode where she's like, this was a realization for you as a kid that bringing home the bacon, that this is what it looked like to be a husband. Hell yeah. The next episode that we're getting into is a good place for us to pause and talk a little more about some of the current responses to this show. This episode, it's the ninth episode of the fifth season. It's called Unidentified Black Males. So do you remember why it's called that? It's called Unidentified Black Males because Meadow and retelling the story of Jackie Jr., who, you know, just last season, Meadow knew that it was very likely that Jackie Jr. was killed by the mob. In this episode, mm -hmm. she refers to Jackie being killed by a group of Black kids. Right, which is a great transition into talking about this show does not feature any Black characters that we would call positive. A recent piece on the ringer.com by Julian Kimball is questioning if the many saints of Newark did a good job of handling race and the way we think and talk about race on the Sopranos. It's not really an update, <laughs> even though, I mean, it's a prequel, so it's not an update at all. But yeah, there's a new plot point, which is the character of, played by Leslie Odom Jr. called Harold McBrayer, who is a black gangster, um, who's sort of a mentee and then becomes later a rival of the character Dickie Moltisanti, who's Christopher's father. Right. And I, I'm just going to read a little bit from Julian's piece about why he thinks that the Mini Saints of Newark missed an opportunity to address race in a meaningful way. Needing someone to feel superior to is very white. And both the Sopranos and the Mini Saints of Newark emphasize this through their handling of the tension between Black people and Italian Americans. Julian Kimball is talking about 
that Leslie Odom Jr., who plays the Black gangster Harold McBrayer, a character in The Many Saints of Newark, which was written by David Chase and Lawrence Connor. He's saying the key difference between Harold and the overwhelming majority of the Black characters who have passed through the Sopranos universe is that Chase and Connor aim to establish his interior life. But the few glimpses the many Saints of Newark offers all revolve around his anger at being subdued. This is further down in the article. Harold's entire arc is a quest for equality, but there's nothing revolutionary about wanting to be equal to the white men who have held you back. He, he describes the attempt at creating a three-dimensional Black character merely produced a red herring who exists primarily to give Dickie Moltisanti a nemesis. Right. In many Saints there's a juxtaposition of black street life to Italian gang life. So that's what we're talking about. You know, this isn't a new thing. Even before we had like Oscar so white, Emmy so white, we knew and know that most writers in the rooms that make all of popular culture are straight white men. There'll sometimes be like one token female voice in the room, usually a white woman. This is beginning to change, but it reminded me of just Chase's generation of writers and directors who come from that world of Scorsese realism, where it's like they're not thinking about, wow, we're freezing out all of these actors from roles the same roles that we would give a white leading man. These are stereotypes that we're furthering. And therefore, people of color that are being cast are not offered a plethora of roles like white actors are or historically have been. So I just thought it was worth mentioning because this episode refers to a plot point where Meadow as you said, needs to believe that Jackie Jr. was killed by unidentified black males and not, you know, her father and the mob that he rules. Yeah, absolutely. But something happens in unidentified black males, which is that Finn, the boyfriend of Meadow, who she meets at Columbia, gets sort of a summer job thanks to Tony working in a construction site that some of his guys are running slash ripping materials off of to sell on the black market. And Finn gets to work really early one morning and catches the character of Vito, a, a high-ranking captain who makes a lot of money for Tony, giving a blowjob to a security guard. And Vito sees that Finn saw. Yeah. He is afraid. And Vito is afraid that Finn is going to tell his secret. And no one really believes like Meadow's like so nice. She's like, he's a married man. What are you talking about? Like, she can't believe it. No one can really believe it. The rumor doesn't spread openly at first, but at least Finn and Meadow know at this point. And this kind of gives us an, an opening to talk about the surprising reception to the show. You know, we were talking earlier about this renewed interest in the show. And millennials and Gen Z viewers watching it during the pandemic, we were surprised to find, and we talked to Matt about this too, Matt tipped us off to some pieces um, that have come out in the past year written by queer writers who said that they felt a real affinity with the characters of The Sopranos. 
Mm-hmm. This definitely surprised me. A piece by P.E. Moskowitz in New York Magazine earlier this year. Mm-hmm. What Carmela Soprano taught me about being a woman. I couldn't imagine being happy, but I could imagine being Carmela. Moskowitz is trans and they elaborate by saying, seeing a woman whose aesthetic I could yearn for, but who was herself emotionally, socially, and sexually repressed made the prospect of womanhood seem realistic for me. I could not imagine being a woman who was happy and free, but I could imagine being Carmela. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. It is fascinating. Yeah, that writer talks about that they felt that watching Carmela wasn't a depiction of a woman that was necessarily free, but that also a woman who performed her gender with big hair and acrylic nails and cute shirts. Um, In that vulture piece, they talk about a quote from Edie Falco that talked about how powerful it was for her to put on those acrylic nails, that it really helped her to like utterly become This woman who essentially is backed into a corner because of her traditional, quote, femininity. Her husband, as the breadwinner, is bringing home the bacon, and she doesn't have a lot of freedom in the relationship. Yeah. Matt told us about this great piece in Mel magazine called Sopranos Belongs to the Gays Now, and here's him reading a little more. Perfect. Can I just interject one yes. little quote from this article that Chingy Nay wrote for uh, Mel Magazine called Sopranos Belongs to the Gays Now? It's just a magnificent title, but it says, uh, the men also communicate who they are through their presentation, always slicking their hair back and strutting around in loose-fitting tracksuits and polos. They present themselves as everyman. The only time they don something well-fitting is when they wear a suit, the symbol of the respect and power of their position. Even if they don't realize it themselves, every man and woman on The Sopranos is performing gender at such a high level that the show smacks at the stuff. And because many queer people live outside the confines of traditional gender roles, we're more used to recognizing that all of us are performing gender, whether we know it or not. Yeah. So, you know, this Mel Magazine piece is great for a lot of reasons. The writer Chingy Nay, she does a good job of, of also capturing a lot of tweets that have been floating around Twitter for the past year. Tweets like, I like it when the boys on The Sopranos kiss each other on the cheek. Little smooches for the fellas. Another tweet that says, I think, quote, watching The Sopranos with the boys, quote, can be a deeply lesbian act. There's another tweet from P.E. Moskowitz who wrote the piece on Carmela for Vulture. It says, LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, Tony Soprano. So the T in LGBT standing for Tony instead of trans. Um, Hmm. Somebody else tweeting, I am Carmela Soprano's bizarrely transmasculine taste in blouses. Jesus. (laughs) The list goes on and on. We decided to go straight to the source of that wonderful article. I talked to Chingy Ney, the author of that piece, She's an editorial contributor at Mel Magazine. We talked a little bit more about queerness on The Sopranos. She had some interesting things to say about Tony and Carmela as parents in relation to queer themes. And she also told me about her own father and how The Sopranos has helped her to better understand him. She has a complicated relationship with him. Just as a heads up to our listeners and as a um, apology to Chingy, 
We had some technical difficulties with this audio, so I am so sorry that this sounds like it was recorded on a fax machine at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> Chingy, the next time you come on, we're going to improve your sound a lot more. I think the reason that people are still drawn to it is because it's a really rich text. Genders, like, I feel at the heart of that show more than any other of the, like, big TV prestige dramas. Even Mad Men, which has Matthew Leiter as its showrunner, and he was um, a writer in the later seasons, and that's set in the 1960s. But in Mad Men, characters break out of the gender roles assigned to them. They get dissatisfied with them. In The Sopranos, characters get dissatisfied with them and then repeat them again and again and again. The only gay character on The Sopranos is Vito, who is murdered in a hate crime. And so the fact that The Sopranos would have sort of this resurgence within the queer community was surprising to me. And then I read your piece and it made so much sense, like what you draw out in your piece about what's actually happening in it that applies to gender and queerness. You reference theatricality the drama and pettiness of these big mobsters, the camp of it all, even. What were some of the examples that stood out for you on the series? I think the thing that was most potent for me, there's this intergenerational conflict with the culture they're in, just like highly rigid gender roles, like put to the maximum volume. And that Tony and Carmela have a tendency to like succeed at their roles but be dissatisfied with them. And the next generation after them is Christopher and Adriana, but they both fail very badly at each of their respective gender roles. Christopher is definitely a failed man in Tony and the rest of his crew's eyes, and they just sabotage him at every turn. And then Christopher did that very same thing to Adriana, where like he didn't protect her the way everyone else protects their women. He let her be a part of his business and she wanted to have a job instead of be just a housewife like everyone else. And also she could not bear children. So she couldn't be a wife and she couldn't be a mother. And I think if she had been either of those things, she would have survived the series. Really the only ones who really do get out are not the surrogate children, but their actual children, Anthony Jr. and Meadow. And like, they don't entirely get out. They're still close to their family, but they're breaking the role that their family has. AJ is like working in production instead of being a violent monster. Meadow actually has a job, which both Tony and Carmela are very jealous of their children. Like they're jealous of the things that they've given their children that they didn't get from their parents. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, that all just struck a chord with me of how parents often interact with their children were freer in gender and like feel more able to do whatever they want uh, yeah. because they've had supportive parents. The thing about Vito is I like him being gay doesn't make me care enough about him as a person. I feel like that was one of the show's main fumbles because he was just like one of the least sympathetic or like interesting characters and him being gay was the only thing sympathizing him. And uh, he had no other personality traits. There's all these father and brother figures and like uncle figures and the Sopranos. These people are supposed to be like who you're learning from, but they're all teaching you shit. It struck me that you said in your piece that, that you see some of yourself in Christopher 
and also your own father and Christopher. What are some of the things that have come up for you in watching that around like your family dynamics or where you come from? You mentioned you're working on an essay about this too. Yeah, it's an essay I've been working on for a couple months. Basically, so my dad is Italian. He's not from New Jersey or anything. He's not mobbed up, but like I see a lot of like multiple men in the show in my father or like I see him in multiple of them, like the Leotardo, the just like strict homophobia that also seems like it's self-loathing, like that scene where the Leotardo comes out of the closet to kill Vito. The side of him I see is like kind of like a smutty, putty guy in Artie Duco. And then like, I see his jealousy in like uh, Tony, but I definitely see the most of him and me and Christopher. It's interesting that Christopher is my favorite character because he's a character who's a domestic user. He's the only like main character who's a domestic abuser. And I like grew up in a situation where that was prevalent. And it's just like interesting for me to feel sympathy for that character so much. But it's just like he's just so thoroughly humanized in that show. And like nothing he's ever does is like he can't help that he does this because he's treated this way. It's like, no, everything he's doing is wrong and terrible. But like, then you also see, like, I think the most tragic side of Christopher in one of my favorite episodes is Big Girls Don't Cry, which is when he takes an acting class. Adriana like, gets him an acting class for writers. And that's the most interesting episode in the series to me because for the rest of the series, when Christopher's like Hollywood ambitions come up, He's made out to be a putt who, like, thinks he's better at art than he is. And what's interesting is in that episode, he shows a real actual knack for improvisation and, like, acting and expressing emotion. And it freaks him out. And so he beats up his scene partner and quits acting and throws away the screenplays. And I think the part of me that I see in him is being scared when things get hard with the art and you have to be too vulnerable but i i like tend to push through that but i i think i'm just scared to become that because i feel like that's what my dad has done with his life it's like you could actually be good at the thing you want to do but you would rather take the easy road which is being violent i thought that was so interesting about her father and i told chingy she needs to come back on after that essay comes out and do like a full episode with us about it yeah i love that she connected with that scene that we talked about on our first episode with christopher in the acting class yeah you see how big the show is busy it's so universal that one scene out of 86 hours of a show from 23 years ago it still resonates. There's also talking about gender on the show and the performance of gender. We started talking, Erin, about the depictions of sex on this show. There's straight sex. But we wanted to talk about a scene specifically that I think happens in the third season where Janice is having sex with Ralphie and she's pegging him with a vibrator. <laughs> yeah. And calling him like a little bitch or something. Yeah, she's calling him a little bitch. And I think in that same season or the season before, she lets Richie hold a gun to her head during sex. Janice seems to be, um, I guess, maybe what you would describe as being sex positive. I think that Tony 
and we're kind of going retroactively here that this doesn't happen in season five because as we know, Ralphie was murdered in season four. So we're kind of backing up here a little bit. Tony is sort of mounting internally a reason to kill Ralphie. You know, like he just hates this guy. Yeah. He suspects him for killing Paiomai. And he's also sleeping with Ralphie's girlfriend who calls Tony on the phone to sort of complain to him about how Ralphie's into really kinky sex. And Tony is like blown away. Like she's like saying that Ralphie wants uh, her to drip candle wax on his balls and kind of like garden variety kink stuff. But Tony is horrified. Oh, yeah. He then goes to Janice, his sister, who had this relationship with Ralphie. And it's like, is this true that he's into this, this stuff? And, you know, Janice being Janice says, I'll tell you, but you have to pay me three grand. <laughs> so here, we're going to play this clip of, of what she tells Tony. He bottoms from the top. I don't even know what that means. Means he has to control things, but he pretends he doesn't. Like he'd make me fuck him with a strap on and call him my bitch, shit like that. What about playing old fucking? I'm telling you, he can't get hard that way. He bottoms from the top. It's an amazing line, but it's funny. And Chingy reminded me of this too, Aaron. I forgot about this, that Ralphie, I think in season four, is sort of testing the waters. And he and some fellow wise guys are talking about Janice. And he says Wait. something like, you know, she was crazy. She, you know, she wanted to use a strap on me once. And I told her no. And the, all the guys are like, oh my God, she's nuts, you know, but. You know, as the viewer, we know he absolutely did enjoy having a strap on used on him. He asked to be called a little whore. Right. Even if they are kinky in any way, you would never let your mob brothers know that because it's too emasculating. I mean, we see that in an earlier season with Junior, who has this girlfriend. You see them in bed together and she's complimenting him on his prowess at oral sex. And he's like, you know, you can never tell anybody about that, that I do that to you. I, it just can never get out because if people know, then it's like they can see that I'm weak and it gets out. And so just like this game of telephone this season, you see how the rumor mill can completely go haywire and when it gets out junior of course denies it and cruelly breaks it off with his girlfriend yeah blaming her for ruining his life junior's i think singledom is sort of played for comedy a lot and he's also sort of used as like a don't end up like uncle june there's a scene where tony's telling that you referenced before where he's telling Christopher, like, just marry Adriana. She's great. Yeah. And he says something like, you don't want to end up like Uncle June. And that scene where he, you know, breaks up with the girlfriend that he really loved makes it even sadder because she's like, I love you. It's the only relationship you see him in the whole series. And I don't know, it seems like he sabotages it all because he's so afraid of having his masculinity questioned. But you know, the concept of like being good to a wife, quote unquote, being faithful to a wife, let alone bringing a woman sexual pleasure is definitely eschewed by the wise guys of The Sopranos. And you also see that in season four with the character of Johnny Sack and his wife, Ginny, who mm -hmm. is struggling with her weight. 
a joke is made about her weight that ends up going completely off the rails. Talk about gossiping. Um, Somebody tells a joke about Ginny and Johnny is not there, but he hears about it later and it really spirals out of control a little. But there's a very moving scene where he tells her that she shouldn't worry about being thin for him and that he loves her no matter what. Did I ever ask you to go on a diet? Did I ever ask you to be thin for me? The fasting, the Nutrisystems, those goddamn dealer meal cards? You see the other wives, the way men look at them. Don't I look at you like that? Haven't I always? It was your idea, what was dieting nonsense? I want you to be proud of me. I am proud of you. I love you. I think it's a side of marriage and what it means to support a spouse that you never see otherwise on The Sopranos. That's right. You never hear a man on The Sopranos say, I love you no matter what to their wife. I don't care what you look like. So yes, we thought we would touch on that. So to speak. So to speak. We would touch on that. Pun intended. We'll just quickly say that in the episode Cold Cuts, you really see Christopher really doesn't like to be embarrassed. Tony and, and Tony B played by... Steve Buscemi are razzing him, but it only happens when they're together. When he's alone with Steve Buscemi previously to this, before Tony comes to this farm that they're on on Cold Cuts, everything's going great. They're opening up to each other. They're bonding. And I think you really see how much Christopher affects Tony, but also how much of a bully Tony is to him. And he cries on the way home from the farm. Yeah. Because they're so mean to him on the trip. And sort of revealing him the whole time. Okay. Yeah. Long-term parking. Big one. Another iconic episode of the entire series, long-term parking. So brilliant. The writing, extremely riveting to watch. Adriana, there's no going back. The FBI has her by the balls. And they're like, if you don't get Christopher to flip and talk, it's over for all of you. And they have some dirt on her that could now get her real prison time, not just like cocaine possession. We'll point out that Adriana never gave the FBI anything substantial or at least on purpose. And she would never betray Christopher. But she is pushed to confess to him one night at home. Like, I have to tell you something, you know, and she tells him. And first of all, it's one of the greatest pieces of acting by both of these actors. The scene is just like so raw, similar to James Gandolfini with Edie Falco when they are having knockdown, drag out fights. Christopher is sobbing. What did you do? What did you do? And she's sobbing and trying to be like, we can run away together. We can, you know, get in a safe house and have fake identities, like really believing that there's an answer and that it's going to be okay because they can live on love. And of course, Christopher, you can see in his eyes like a million miles a minute realizing the implications that he is going to have to choose between Adriana living and being with her or betraying Tony and possibly losing everything he has his whole identity in the family with a capital F. For a moment, you think that he is going to go with Adriana. He makes her believe that. 
He's like, pack up our stuff. I'm going to go get gas. He does go get gas. I, as the viewer, believed that it was going to be okay, maybe. I did. But there's, right? And then there's this scene where he's watching this like trashy married couple and their bratty kids have an argument at the gas station. And next thing you know, it cuts to Adriana packing their things in the apartment and Tony calls her from a payphone and you see Tony say to her, Adriana. Hello? Yeah, it's me. Look, everything's okay. Jesus, I don't even know how to say this. It's Christopher. He tried to commit suicide. Oh my God, is he all right? He's fine. He was up by Ramapo. He apparently took some pills. And his trooper found him in, in the bathroom at his diner, and, and they brought him to the hospital. His mom's on her way up there now. Did he say anything to you? I mean, did he appear suicidal? No. Are you sure? Because his mom said he's very upset about something. Anyway, I'm, I'm on my way up there now, and uh, I'm going to send Syl by to pick you up then, okay? He lets her believe that Chrissy has tried to kill himself because of what she's told him. Yeah, that it's all her fault. That it's all her fault. There's this extra cruel layer to it, which is not Christopher's been in a car accident. It's Christopher tried to kill himself. He's, quote, very upset about something. It's Tony is twisting that knife. Yeah, did he say anything to you about it? Because even if she were to, like, confess and say everything that needed to be said right there, it would still be the same fate. He's just like a cat with a mouse. Yeah. The other thing about that scene is that, you know, Christopher, when Adriana tells Christopher, he almost kills her. He hits her repeatedly in the face and chokes her, almost kills her by choking her. And, you know, when she's talking on the phone to Tony, she has two black eyes and a busted lip and chin. Like with I was talking before about their incredible acting and how raw the scene is and how they're both sobbing. And it's like your brain can't wrap your mind around like within the same scene as they're clinging to each other like in love and fear he also starts battering her Mm -hmm. in the same embrace and almost chokes the life out of her yeah he comes extremely close and so silvio comes and picks her up and he's supposedly gonna bring her to christopher and He doesn't. He takes her into the woods and kills her. And that's the end of the episode. We don't see it, blessedly, this time, her murder. You don't see Adriana get shot. And I'm going to read Matt and Alan um, in the Soprano Sessions ask David Chase about that decision because historically, you see people get shot graphically and you see violent deaths. But they asked Chase about that decision to not show on camera. Chase told them, you know, I've thought about that a lot. And the fact that you don't see her get shot. And I guess it just felt wrong. It's probably something that I didn't want to see myself. I really liked Mm -hmm. that character too much. She'd suffered enough. And she wasn't pretentious. She was not a phony intellectual. She was just a trusting, sobbing, prone person. She was innocent. Mm. She really is trusting and a very genuine person without any 
airs, so to speak. And so it was tragic. And thinking about her makes my heart hurt. <laughs> yeah. You get attached to characters and you feel strongly about some of these characters. And she is just tragic with a capital T to me. And this episode is called Long-Term Parking because the mob, like, gets rid of her body and they park her car at long-term parking at the airport because the narrative is going to be that all of a sudden, Adriana left. She just took off with another guy and left Christopher, abandoning him, which... Carmela is so quick to believe, and all these other characters are quick to believe. Yeah. We don't see in this episode what went down, but we will hear later in flashbacks. Yeah, we'll see. Carmela is really quick to believe it, and you hear that lie perpetuated throughout the whole show that Adriana just got up and it's so sad, and she's probably in witness protection. Or Christopher also has another version of the lie that she just left him for another guy and no one ever heard from her again. It's alarming how much the two architects of her murder, Tony mm -hmm. and Christopher, tell that lie over and over again. And it just shows how truly disposable women are, anyone that gets in their path. It's so dark. It's so sad. And it's not even the last episode in season five. Erin, <laughs> what happens in, in the finale of this season, which is called All Due Respect? All Due Respect is interesting because Steve Buscemi, the actor, plays Tony's cousin. His name is also Tony, Tony B. He's kind of like a charming character. He's trying to to kind of at one point get out of the life and transition into having a massage parlor or spa of his own. Massage therapy. Massage, massage therapy. Because he gets his license and everything. And he's like really the most intellectual of the characters or the intellectually curious. He knows things, even though he's also a heartless killer when he needs to be. You see Tony having like real respect for this guy. And... There's a plot point where Tony B, he's going to get killed by Phil Leotardo's guys, <laughs> yeah. one of Tony's rivals in the New York family. And so Tony realizes like Tony B is either going to be killed by Phil and his gang or Tony's going to have to do it. But he's also pissed at Tony B for putting him in this position. And there's a certain point of pride and masculine chest beating where it's like, this is my responsibility and I'm going to take care of it. And he shoots his own cousin in the head. It might be seen as a mercy killing, maybe in his eyes, but he leaves the body where it lays outside um, Tony B's own house where he's hiding out. And it's winter. So his body is like frozen by the time the rival executioner shows up to take care of that. And it's another, yet again, point of no return. You're reminded, you know, this character can't be redeemed. Everyone's disposable, just like Adriana. Yeah. At the end, though, like the final scene of the episode and that season, is it when the FBI comes for Johnny Sack? Yes, it ends with the FBI coming for Johnny Sack. And Tony is on Johnny Sack's porch 
when it happens and Tony runs away and gets away. Yeah, he's like running through the snowy woods to get from Johnny Sachs McMansion to his own while dodging what he assumes are the cops coming for him. There's all these indictments going down all over town and he gets away. He kind of like ambles through those same bushes in Carmela's backyard. They are sort of reunited now and she's allowing him back into the house because he's given her what she needs financially. And they basically make a pact to get back together. And he ambles through these bushes just like the bear in episode one. And you hear Carmela welcoming him back into the home. And she's like, why are your feet so wet? Come in from the cold. You know, like this regular domestic scene. And it's just, oof. We know we're right back where we started. We're right back where he started. Let's do what The Sopranos would do and leave our viewers with kind of a, a messy cliffhanger for next time okay. and get into the first episode of season six in which dot, dot, dot. Mm, Junior shoots Tony in the belly. You know, Tony goes over to the house just to check in on Junior. Junior is so confused and demented. He goes and gets a gun and just suddenly shoots Tony, which we've seen before many times, like these out of nowhere shootings where you're reminded that everybody is dangerous and there's guns everywhere and anyone could die at any moment. It is so shocking. It is so serious. This episode contains the quote from Tony, I don't care how close you are. In the end, friends are going to let you down. Family, they're the only ones you can count on. Yeah, tell us about it, Tony. The episode ends with him essentially bleeding out on Junior's floor. You, uh, you don't know what's going to happen. Well, we do. But Tony has been shot and he is hospitalized. And I, we pick up next episode, which will be our fourth and final episode we promise <laughs> no more Sopranos episodes after this. We're going to talk about what it looks like for Tony to be clinging to life, how his family reacts and the rest of the series. And we're going to hear way more from Matt and Alan next episode. So please tune in. Yeah, it's going to be the best yet. No, it really is. It's such a rich tapestry, you know, to explore. It's a rich tap. Yeah. Seasons six and seven are holy mother of God packed with a lot that we're going to unpack next time. We're going to find out Tony's fate from that shooting. A lot happens with Tony and his relationship with his kids, particularly AJ. We are going to talk the most yet with Matt and Alan about their conversations with David Chase and the meaning of the infamous final episode, probably in all of television. That's right. What really happened? Mm -hmm. Why it happened? What does it mean? What does it mean? We'll also talk about James Gandolfini, the actor as well, and hear from more from Matt about that, who became very friendly with him during his time writing about The Sopranos while James was alive. And the incredible real-life circumstance where James Gandolfini's son, Michael Gandolfini, how many years later, 
after his dad's death, then plays him in the many states of Newark. Yeah, it's really amazing. So don't be a bacha galoop. Please tune in and uh, we'll see you next time. Bacha galoop. Tell Me About Your Father and Daddy Issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And for bonus content, go to patreon.com slash, you guessed it, tell me about your father, where for as little as $3, you'll get access to an extra episode of Daddy Issues every month. Oh, and Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think.